Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. Within the human heart, there seems to be a preoccupation with the idea of love. We sing, talk, dream, and write about it. In this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, entitled Love Without Wax, we'll see that God's love is not simply nice feelings, but it is beautifully interweaved with the purifying work of truth. Please, we'd love for you to contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Eric Ludy. Love without wax. There's a word called sincere. We know it typically as sincerity, uh, as, as far as a character quality. And there's sort of a legendary folklore of where the term comes from in the Latin. And that is from the word sine, which means without, and the word sera, which means wax. Without wax. And so here's the etymological folklore right here. According to one popular explanation, dishonest sculptors in Rome or Greece would cover flaws in their work with wax to deceive the viewer. Therefore, a sculpture without wax would mean honesty in its perfection. And so when we're signing our letters sincerely, we're basically saying, what you have just heard is honesty to its perfection without wax. Isn't that an interesting statement? I've always loved this word. There's arguments about if this is the actual root term for it, that it really didn't come from the Latin. I would, it bothers me when people do that because it's the same thing with removing Pluto, you know, as one of the planets. It's like, hey, it makes sense. It's good. Why do we need to mess with it? Everyone's like, oh, I'm not certain if that's the original origin. So I like it. Uh, whether or not it is, it's still good. That's a powerful statement. Now, when we're dealing with without wax, and we're talking about sincerity or being sincere, which by the way, it is a biblical word, and it's an important concept, and I would like to build on it today. Eric Ludy has some wax that has been put on his life, and we're going to talk about external wax and internal, and the rest of the message after we talk about external wax for a few minutes We're going to talk about internal wax, which I would say is the wax that we really need to be on guard against. But there is some external wax. When I was eight, uh, I was, you know, had my uh, grown-up teeth in and uh, had a buddy of mine who was a little older and I always did whatever he said. You know, his name was David. He had a big mop of curly blonde hair. I remember that. And he set up this nice little bike jump for me. And actually, he set it up for both of us, but he wanted me to test it. And so as I was biking full speed, and I got literally two feet away from the the thing, it fell over. The log that he had it propped up on fell over. And uh, I crashed into his now uh, disheveled ramp and went straight over the handlebars and landed on my face, and half my front tooth was taken out in the crash. So I had this fang. You can be very glad that I have a little wax added to my body here. So Eric Ludy is not without wax. Uh, I've had braces. I remember when I was over in Australia, uh, I was, uh, Leslie and I both were quite the shocker over, uh, it might have been even New Zealand, well, I think it was both Australia and New Zealand. They're not used to, I guess, I mean, it was sort of strange, but straight teeth. It's like in America, we're just sort of used to it. But over there, they wanted to know if my teeth were real. 
Tech, I did say they were, even though I probably, to be without wax, should have said, yeah, well, this one, half of the front tooth is technically fake. But yeah, my teeth are real. Of course they are. Uh, but, you know, I have had some alterations done to my physical body that have made me a little less distracting. Uh, I do have male pattern baldness, but you may not be able to tell because I have something called hair thickener. There are little points of wax that have been applied to the life of Eric Ludi. So to say that it is honesty in its perfection, I'm not exactly sure. However, if we were to take it to its extreme and we were to say, you know, our birthday suit that we popped out of the womb in is how we were supposed to demonstrate honesty without honesty in its perfection, then most of us would say, please add a little wax. Okay, so there are little things that are done in a culture and in our, you know, our human life to cover up little trivialities, things that would otherwise be a distraction to our social engagement and encounter with other people. But long and short, when we're talking about sincerity, we're not just talking about externals. Our culture has a major problem with external wax, as you've seen the us you know, sliding off the scales in the side of trying to fix up our outer body to be something that would be appealing to the masses. However, as Jesus said about the Pharisees, first clean the inside side in the cup and dish, and the outside will be clean also. We as Christians, the issue isn't just the externals, it's the internal. And if we're going to deal with wax today, we want all the wax to melt away that's in our heart. Because that's the real issue before God. And if we start melting wax in the inside, then the outside just naturally follows suit. And we become as we ought to be. Sincerity. This is the biblical Greek word, alikrines. Pure, sincere, unsullied. Found pure when unfolded and examined by the sun's light. Isn't that a neat definition? It's not one that we're that interested in having to have happen to us. Found pure when unfolded and examined by the sun's light. I'm not exactly sure that I'm interested in the sun's light. Now, this is just a Greek word. We make it a Christian word, and suddenly that word son turns into S-O-N, capital S-O-N. Found pure when unfolded and examined by the sun, Jesus Christ's light. But this isn't just talking about adding wax to a sculpture. This is the concept of purity, sincerity. It's something that is unsullied. It's unmarred. So here's in Philippians 1 where it's used. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That ye may approve things that are excellent. That ye may be sincere. Let me go back to that. Pure, sincere, unsullied. Found pure when unfolded and examined by the sun's light. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Purity and love, the inseparable pair. Now, this is interesting because if you study love, most of us would group love with faith, and for good reason, okay? Faith expressing itself in love is the Christian operation. And so we see faith and love oftentimes, but to call Bert and Ernie purity and love isn't necessarily where most of us would come from. However... As you see this, us unpack this biblically, you're going to see that there are two functions in the Christian life. 
and their purity in love. But they're not called that necessarily throughout the Bible. You have the Old Testament laying a foundation, and then the New Testament enunciates it. But there are two things that must be evidenced in the Christian life for it to function properly. So you'll see this in Ephesians 5. So we're talking about purity and love. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. Okay, so you're supposed to, as a Christian, walk in love, which I know is just elementary school Christianity, but what is love? And then look at this, as Christ also has loved us. Whew, that's a pretty high standard for love there, of how we're supposed to be loving. But then look at this, period, right after the word savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Who are you? You're a saint of God, which means you're to exhibit love. That's one of the testimonies that we're his disciple. However, if you really are a saint of God, then you're also marked by something we could call purity. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient. I love that. Not convenient. Yeah, they kill you. They're definitely not convenient. But rather giving of thanks. The false doctrine of love. The faulty message. Now, I'm a big fan of the concept of love. However, I'm going to need to poke at some things today. Because we have a notion that has crept into Christianity... And it's basically that, you know, all these love songs out there. You know, I, I grew up and I loved 80s love songs. Steve Perry, I wanted to sing like Steve Perry of Journey. And so I used to sing way too high. Uh, and if you hear some of my early songs that I wrote, it's ridiculous, okay? I, and then I finally got the manly stuff and I realized it's okay to sing low. You know, but it took me a while to come to that. Uh, but they describe a love. And it's emotional. It's an emotional love. It's a sensual love oftentimes when you're talking about those songs. And a lot of times Christians have a notion of love. It's very emotional. It's how you feel. Well, and I know as many of us have been taught on love, but I would like to poke at least the faulty notion, and then I'd like to build and construct a more healthy understanding. The faulty message. Christ's love is inclusive. It is blind to sin. And I just stop there for a second. I want you to know that churches all over America teach that, whether they say it that bluntly or not. God loves you, which means he is blind to sin, that he doesn't see it. Somehow his love overlooks everything. And whereas there's a part truth in the fact that God loves us even while we are yet sinners, he loves us too much to leave us as sinners. In other words, he loves us and he reaches out. He knows to get us into his presence, he must deal with the sin because the sin is what is blocking us from his presence. And so literally, he lives the pure and faultless life that we couldn't live, and he dies and takes the wrath of God upon himself, and with that very blood that he shed, he cleanses us, so that we actually can come into his presence. God's love is inclusive, it is blind to sin. His love is all accepting. It is really only a heightened, friendly emotion. His love is strong enough to overlook and excuse impurity, fleshly indulgence, and sinful vice. His love prefers compromised agreement over unbending truth. Look at that last line there. His love prefers compromised agreement over unbending truth. Let's all just get along. 
And it's better if we could just come together and agree, even if we have to compromise truth to do it, because that's what love is. Love does not trip over specifics. Truth doesn't have to be the main lead instrument in love. We love, and if, so, if we need to, we exclude truth to make sure our love can be a real love. Is that what love is? I'm actually calling it a false doctrine of love. Heart and reins. Okay, there's two things I'm going to introduce you to here. Remember how I said purity and love are interchangeable, or I'm sorry, are connected. They're the Bert and Ernie uh, in, the, in, the, in the Bible. Hebrew word, heart and reins, is libakilia, which is the heart and kidneys. The Greek is kardiokoinephros, heart and kidneys. All throughout the Bible, you'll hear this concept of the heart and reins, that God searches. He's testing the heart and reins. What's he talking about? What are the heart and reins? The heart is the organ that circulates the blood. The reins are the organ that purify the blood. So you have heart and reins, and they're connected, and they're, very, they're right in the center of your being. Right in the very center, you have your blood, which is life. In the Hebrew understanding, blood is life. And so when Jesus shed his blood for us, he gave up his life for us. And when we, in communion, drink the wine, okay, the, the juice, we are, in a sense, saying, I accept your life in me. It is literally the invasion of another life into this body. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, so blood is the essence of life. Well, for your life and your body to function properly, you need two things functioning as they ought to function. Your heart circulates the blood and actually sends your blood to the kidneys. And your kidneys are responsible to purify the blood. If your heart isn't working properly, guess what? The blood doesn't circulate properly, it doesn't get to your kidneys, and as a result, it isn't purified. And if your kidneys don't function properly, then the blood is impure and it kills your heart. Now, let's just stop there for a second. When we say heart, most of us understand that the heart symbolizes something in Christianity and in, in culture. If you have a big heart, that means you are a person who cares deeply about other people. And I would agree that the Bible supports that notion of big-hearted people, people that are filled with compassion, people that are filled with mercy and kindness towards those around them. I feel like it would be impossible to come up with an argument against big-heartedness as being an attribute of Jesus Christ. The cross was big-heartedness. However, it was also big kidneys. Okay? In other words, Jesus Christ is perfect purity. He was love without the wax. He was love without any sully, without any dirt. He was the way he ought to be, the way we ought to be. And when we love as he loves, we are without wax. And so, we have, both are directly connected with the idea of life in the body, heart and reins. If the reins are removing impurity, then the heart is pure, commissioning the life throughout the entire body. If the heart is circulating the life, then the reins can eliminate the impure elements, thus creating a healthy being. The two organs work in tandem. That's why I say this is the inseparable pair. It doesn't mean that faith and love aren't, you know, something to connect in the Bible as well. But this shows a functionality within the body. This is very practical for our Christian life. 
And if you're going to understand how love works, you go to the center. When we talk about love, we love from here and we pat our chest. Well, you could also pat your back and pat your kidneys. In other words, you're patting the whole center of your existence. What is the center of your being? Who lives there? Because if Jesus lives there, he purifies, he tests your heart and your reins. You're not just a big-hearted Christian. You are a Christian who lives in purity and walks in the light as he is in the light. We would rather cut that in half. We want a love that feels, that feels big feelings, but doesn't have to live pure lives. However, the two are inseparable. What's the deeper spiritual meaning to the heart and reins? It's the sacred part of man. This is the center. Do you think it's an accident? God made you. Do you think it's an accident that he's stuck right in the very center of your being? The heart and the reins. Both the things that are necessary for life to function as it ought to function, for blood to circulate and be cleansed as it ought to function within the body. This is the sacred part, God's portion. In the Old Testament, God gets the heart and reins out of the sacrifice. This portion set aside for God, he gets that. That's what, that's what God gets. This is what we dedicate unto God, the sacred portion of our being. He gets it. He gets my heart. He gets my reins. It's his habitation, his temple within the fleshly body, his ruling center, the holy, holy, holy dwelling place of God. When he moves in, he moves into the heart and reins. He moves into the very center. He takes his throne position right smack in the middle of us. The heart and reins, a.k.a. the call and the kidneys, are the governors of the life, or the blood, of the body, circulating it and purifying it for the health of the overall body. The heart and the reins are the innermost sanctum in which the moral trajectory of man is defined. If light shines in this hidden center, the king is allowed to reign in majesty from the throne of man's soul, and man abides in the grace and power of God to send forth a purified life into every corner of the body. Then man will live, thrive, and bring glory to the Most High. If man refuses the searching, convicting, and purifying light of Christ, then the heart will remain under the control of the flesh and the principle of sin and thusly bear fruit in man's life of pride, selfishness, and deceit. God searches hearts. He tries the kidneys. He tests and examines this inward chamber. For the purity of this inner palace is absolutely mandatory to a truly godly life. So, you, we all grew up in the same culture here. We grew up in a culture, Christian culture, mind you, where love has been defined a certain way. And I tell you what, very few people have included the purity dimension of this operation. In other words, love flows from the center. God is love. And when he overcomes our existence, he takes over our heart and our reins. And one of the evidences that God truly has moved in is he removes the flesh. He circumcises our hearts so that we are not ruled out of human emotion, out of fleshly compulsion, but he removes the flesh from our heart so that we can love unfeigned, so that we can love without guile, so that we can love, get this, without wax. And that happens because our kidneys begin to operate. Our kidneys remove wax. That's what they do. They remove the fallacy of our soul. They remove the junk. They purify the life within us. Let's make sure those kidneys are working. This is Spurgeon's basic summary 
of the concept of heart and reins. He says, he trieth the hearts. And Spurgeon says, those are the secret thoughts. And he trieth the reins. Those are the inward affections. You know that God's after these things inside of you? What's taking place in there? The secret thoughts. Well, no one, no, no one sees them. No, no one needs to hear them. They're just my thoughts. You know that God cares about those thoughts? And if life is functioning as it ought to function inside of the body of Christ, inside of you as an individual, and inside of all of us as a corporate body, then our secret thoughts must be tried according to the word of God. He says, take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. If it's not in alignment with what God's intent is for this body, what God's intent is for your marriage, what God's intent is for your family, what God's intent is for the church, what God's intent is for the lost and dying around this world, what God's intent is for the orphan, the widow, the lost, the imprisoned, the, uh, the diseased and sick, what is his heart? What is his mind? May our secret thoughts come into alignment so that when you're in your secret place, when you're in your closet life, your thoughts are God's thoughts. It's the way it should be. You're not supposed to have a separate life where you have your own thoughts and they're your fleshly thoughts and your sinful thoughts. You just won't expose others to them. It's not a healthy life. Your inward affections. These things must be tried, must be proven. Let them run through the kidneys. Let them be purified. Purity. The heart and reins as they ought to be. Perfect and without blemish, without wax, fortified against invasion, and impervious to the sneak attack of the flesh. We have an idea of purity, by the way, in our, in our culture, Christian culture, because secular culture mocks purity. They're not too interested, and it's, it's a very nerdy character, you know, taped glasses. If you're, if you're at all stand for purity, you're, you're weak, you know, as they would say, a prude. That was the term they always used growing up, a prude. Who wants to be a prude? That sounds like some deformed vegetable or fruit. I'm not, I'm not a prude. Well, prudence, by the way, is a very good quality, and it basically shows a guardedness to your soul. There's something sacred there, and prudence doesn't allow just anything in. Hey, who are you? Tell me, where do you come from? Uh-huh, who sent you? Show me your papers. Hmm. Prudence evaluates everything. So you know what? If someone calls you a prude, you can just say, thank you. Uh, it's the heart and reins as they ought to be, perfect and without blemish. So we have this idea in Christianity today that purity is sort of the equivalent of ignorance or innocence. And so a lot of parents who want their children to be pure feel that it's, there's a necessity to protect them from ever knowing anything about the world. That's known as ignorance. Now, there is what's known as a cocoon of innocence in every child's life. And a child must remain in that state of innocence and ignorance, but it's a healthy ignorance, until their wings are fully made ready, like a butterfly. In other words, they're not ready to fly yet, so keep the cocoon of innocence around them. And we protect them in innocence. But the purpose of that cocoon is not to keep them there. It's to prepare them, why? So that they can fly and not crawl like a caterpillar through the dirt of this earth. They are called to fly above the things of this earth, to be fully understanding of the ways of the enemy, to not be ignorant of his devices, to not be uh, immature and, and innocent to the way the enemy works to attack the human soul and how he's working to attack others. We need to be wise on these matters. However, we do not 
go down to the level where we're in the pig trough, knowing about it, we are able to fly above it, and that's known as purity. We're untouched. Though we're in this world, we're not of it. That's what God prepares us for. The heart and reins as they ought to be, perfect and without blemish, without wax, fortified against invasion and impervious to the sneak attack of the flesh. Purity is the inner evidence of the love of Christ. Heavenly love consists of hearts, heart and it consists of reins. So purity is, as you'll see in Scripture, actually always associated. When God rises up and he talk, starts talking about love, when Paul starts hammering on the issue of love, he almost inevitably follows it up with purity in the church or purity in the body, the individual and the corporate. In other words, if we're going to love, we love as God loves. And God seeks health. He doesn't just seek compromised agreement. Yes, we can all stand together in compromised agreement. The truth falls in the streets. It's a very difficult thing. And I don't know if you guys can feel the tension of where I'm going with this. But love demands purity. So how do we deal with this in the body of Christ? I can tell you how you deal with it in a home, how I deal with my kids in regards to it. I love my kids. Anyone tries to challenge me on the fact that I love my kids, die for my kids, any second of any day. I mean, if you want to get Eric moved, start talking about my kids. Love my kids. However, I will discipline my kids, and we expect purity in our home. If there's a lie floating around in our home, Daddy's on top of it. Daddy's not going to just enter into a compromised agreement with the liar and say, you know what, I understand from your vantage point uh, that lie got you something that you were really needing in that situation. I can understand why you were after that. And so, since I don't want friction, come here, let me give you a hug. It's all right if you lie. You lie, I hug. That's not a healthy home. That's not a healthy body. So therefore, we have an issue and that is, how do we deal with the impurity around us? Do we hug it? Do we accept it with a blind eye? Because we just overlook these things. Now, it does say that love covers over a multitude of sins. However, how does it do it? It does it at the cross. It does it with the same sacrificial givenness to say, I'm committed to your soul to see you press through this. I cannot just hug you. I must give you the love of Christ to see you pressed through this. Love does not hold against the sinner the sin. It brings them to the cross. It forgives quickly. Love wants to see people set free. But love doesn't overlook, turn a blind gaze, and allow that person to die and wither in their sin. We love too much. Remember, we're supposed to be big-hearted. We are truly big-hearted. Don't you care about that soul that is dying? Don't you care about the name of Jesus which is falling in the streets right in the midst of his church today? What does love look like? Heart, that which circulates life. Okay, now, this is probably an oversimplified definition, okay? But I think for the sake of what we're after, which isn't to go just into great depth into the heart and reins as far as how you'd break them out. By the way, if any of you have ever read The Bravehearted Gospel, which is the book I wrote about three or four years ago, I talk about sticking the manly stuff back in Christianity, and I talk about women can come up to men and say, you need to get in touch with your feminine side. You know that men aren't offended by that? We actually know what they mean, 
And we nod along and we say, I'm sure that's what I need to do. I need to be more kind, more sensitive. I need to, you know, be more thoughtful. There's various things that fall into the category of the feminine side. No one's offended. However, how many guys are going to come up to a girl and say, hey, lady, you need to get in touch with your masculine side. Not allowed to say that. However, by the way, this message is about us getting in touch with the masculine side of love. That's what it is. The heart, that which circulates life. We're not struggling necessarily in this category in the church. So my emphasis is not going to be on this today. However, that isn't to detract from it. What we're about to read is half the picture. It's a very important half. Okay, in other words, if you're trying to bake a pie and you remove the crust, it's not that what's inside is bad. However, there's something missing. Or if you just have the crust and you don't have all the apple goop inside, you know what? There's something missing. It's the same thing when you hollow out love or you take one aspect of it. Kindness, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, long-suffering, gentleness, intercession. The givenness to stand for the weak. This is huge. I like that list. And I have no interest in diminishing it. This is love. Reigns, that which cleanses life. Discipline, rebuke, separation, preaching, boldness, truth without wax. Not putting a little wax in to make it look a little more appealing and have it pass along a little better. Truth without wax. God, when he sets truth in your life through the kidneys... It removes all the wax from it. The kidneys are like a fire, and they just burn and melt away that wax. And God allows us to see truth the way he intended it to be. And guess what? Then when we give truth, truth that has gone through us without the wax anymore, hanging on it, guess what comes out of these lips? Truth without wax. That's not a very positive list. If you were going to pick between the two, imagine if we were to take a, an emotional vote. Kindness, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, long-suffering, gentleness, and intercession. Oh, I love that person. Such a big heart. I don't like this person. Discipline, rebuke, separation, preaching, boldness, truth without wax. Very few of us go, oh, what a big kidney. <laughs> no one esteems the kidney. No one really wants the kidney. However, it's not that we just have kidneys in the body of Christ. Because we always say, oh, that's one of the kidneys in the body of Christ over there. Mm -hmm. You need a kidney too. Without a kidney, your life goes south. You die. A big heart doesn't save you. It's a big heart and a big kidney that save you. And Jesus is intending to indwell both. He's intending to make both operational within your existence. The heart and reins are the dual expressions of love within the body. Yes, love is kind. It is patient. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. But listen to the list as it continues. Love purges the mind of error. Love cleanses the heart of deceit. Love removes the hold of sin over the sinner. Now look at this. I'm talking about love does this. However, this is sort of invasive. I mean, a hug is one thing. But this purging, I I don't like it. This cleansing, no. 
removing of the hold of sin over the sinner. We like our sin. Love kicks all wolves out of the church and all wolfishness out of the human life. Love purifies the gospel message of all pollutants. Love valiantly sets straight the perception of the name and nature of Christ to the world. Love circulates life as well as protects life. That's a great line. Study it for a little bit. Love circulates life as well as protects life. If I am going to be a good husband and a good father, I don't just come out and I love you guys. Lay down my life and have this great ministry and then forsake my family. And they're turned over to the wolves. Would you call that love? What you saw in me was love. But I have wax in my life. You know what? God measures a man in every quadrant of his existence. And I prove myself able to handle the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I love well my wife and my children. Now, how do I love well my wife and my children? Because I love God well. How do I love God well? I allow him to have what he purchased on the cross. I allow him to take my heart and my kidneys. God is looking to get the full work of the cross at large within me. Not just to have me love and to show kindness and hugs, but to have me love and allow purity to reign in my innermost being. Did I go through all those? No. Love gives life to the body as well as indignantly destroys every last vestige of cancer that seeks to destroy that life within the body. Again, I'm talking about within a body, right? An individual body. If there's cancer, what does love do? What does that heart do? Does that heart go, you know what? Cancer, you're welcome. You know, you're just as, you have as much of a rightful claim upon the cellular development of this body as anyone else. Is that true? If there's a cancer in the individual body, that big heart sends forth that purified blood through the kidneys so that it can be purged. Starts building up the white blood cells to do some fighting. Why? Because that big heart cares about the body. If you care about the body, the individual body, you get that cancer out. What if you care about the overarching body of Christ? Do we allow cancer? Oh, that's different. Because that's not just in my individual body. I can understand if a cancer is in my individual body. What's the difference? God will go from one to the other. Paul will shift from one to the other as he's talking, as if they're both the same. You are a mini representation of the global body of Christ. We need the kidneys at work within the church of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you haven't begun to figure this out, especially after this message, you're going to start saying, Eric, you're one big kidney. I know it. Not because I want to be. You know that I've always been a big heart? That's what I've been. You just don't know it because you didn't know me when I had my fang tooth. You didn't know me when I had braces on. I was Mr. Nice Guy. I wouldn't confront you if my life depended on it. I'll just let them go to hell. Hi, love you. I didn't ironically, care. But I was a nice guy and I, I loved being around you. I had a smile for you at every turn. Uncompromising love. Love that demands the purification of the beloved. Oh, look at that subtitle. Love that demands the purification of the beloved. I know we, we're seeing the word beloved and you're not catching it. Those that are beloved... Love demands their purification. 
demands it. It's the commission of God. Wait till you start seeing the scriptures that Eric's going to start throwing on you here. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable, by the way, this isn't just the scripture I was intending to follow up after that exact statement. Uh, but this will just show you, this is God. This is God speaking. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, liars get thrown in with that list. Those that put wax all over the place shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Is that a loving God? It's a good question. Is that a loving God? I would defend the nature and the character of my God and say, yes, it is. My God loves. And he's always love. He's the embodiment of love. And yet, there is a lake that burns with fire. He doesn't desire you to go there. But his love will enable this to actually still be in someone's future. He loves without contradiction. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Hey, God loves you so much that he's telling you the truth. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus. God loves you so much that he's given you away. That's his love. He doesn't want you there. He wants you with him. That's his love. Everyone else focuses on, well, how could a loving God do that? Well, ask yourself the question, what kind of love is this that God would literally send himself to do the work and to take the blow and to take the punishment and to take the wrath for you. What love is this? It's extraordinary. It's otherworldly. That's our God. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murder, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. God is purity. And you'll notice this just in these scriptures. You don't oftentimes think it this way. We already know God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's love. However, this love does not sacrifice purity to get you to himself. Our God maintains his pure standard. By the way, this is New Testament, New Covenant language here that we're reading. This isn't the Old Testament when supposedly God was mean. And then he got nice when Jesus came. Jesus is not a modification of God. He's the enunciation, the full fleshing out of the way God has always been. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changed. He's never altered. He is love. But that love is not just kindness and gentleness and compassion. It's not just a big heart. It's a big kidney. A great fear of God. Now, this is the early church. This is the early church. God's love is gushing forth out of his people. Their bellies are literally become fountains of living water 
is flowing out into the countryside. Thousands upon thousands are coming into the kingdom of heaven. God is being evidenced and made manifest in their midst. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own in thine own power? So Ananias and Sapphira sell their plot of land and under the pretense of giving all the money to the apostles and laying it at their feet, they actually kept back some. And so as Peter says, they lied to the Holy Ghost. They're actually living and they're doing a sacrifice and an offering unto the church, which is with wax. It is covering over a deception. Now, unfortunately, so many of us can relate to this. So many of us live lives with wax that this story sounds so utterly extreme. Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Which, by the way, if those of you that don't know what the ghost is, it's the spirit, which means he died. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in and Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Now, could you imagine thinking suddenly the bright light is shining upon you, the sun is shining, and God is showing that you are not pure, that your thoughts are actually in concordance with Ananias and Sapphira's? But I want you to ask this question to yourself. Was Peter a demonstration of God's love? Because if Peter even comes close to doing anything like that today in the church, he would be called hateful, judgmental, condemning. Think about it. This is Petrus, the rock. This is Jesus' chief. This guy's important. As we could say, he's a chip off the old rock. He's a demonstration of what God can do in a man. God is love. Is Peter showcasing that love? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because that doesn't sound like love to us. Now, is the Bible wrong? Are we right? Are our sensibilities of what love is correct? Who taught it to us? Did we get it out of the Bible or did we get it from our society? That's not loving. Well, you know what? God's version of love is the version of love. And whatever God defines as love, I say let's pick it up and run with it because it's what's supposed to mark us as his disciples. A seemingly strange sort of love, at least to our modern world. Listen to this list. It's a love that disciplines, a love that rebukes, a love that separates, a love that proclaims truth with unbending, uncompromising fervor, a love untarnished by sin and unstained by the flesh. And here's one of the challenges we deal with here. Every one of the scriptures I'm just about to go through has been hijacked by people that have not love. 
And what they do is they wield these scriptures with an abusive fashion. Have you ever heard of that scripture, wives submit to your husbands? Mm Mm-hmm. Hijacked by men all over the church. And they tell their wives to submit. They abuse their wives. They are criminal in their nature towards their wives. They're not living a life with a healthy heart and a healthy kidney. However, they're wielding the word of God. The word of God is true, even though people abuse it. So somehow we need to scrape off the barnacles and get back to the essence because a lot of us have have gone into the opposite camp of what love is because we have seen the religionists and the legalists take some of these scriptures and misuse them. These words are pure. David says the word of God is pure. These words are pure. So whether or not we have ever seen them properly used does not mean that they are not pure words of God. A love that disciplines. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You notice how love is in that line? That, that's not love. Well, wait a minute. The Bible defines it as love. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? Now, I, I, if I, we had more time, we'd read all the way to verse 11. I would encourage you to do so because that is a lot more down that vein. It's really great. Proverbs 3. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Even as a father, the son in whom he delights. A love that rebukes. Can you imagine rebuke being loving? Could it possibly be loving? Can you think of anything more unloving as to rebuke? Most of us are saying, what in the world's rebuke? To speak truth, frankly, and appropriately. To rescue a soul from a downward spiral. Them that sin rebuke before all. This is Paul speaking to Timothy, who was young, by the way. He says, them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Now, some of you might be a little confused. Remember that pattern in Matthew that talks about how to deal with someone who's uh, in the wrong? And we're always like, well, we're supposed to go to them, and then if they don't receive it, then we bring someone else, and then, you know, there's this whole pattern we go through. You know that when someone is sinning publicly, it's a public issue? The context of the Matthew uh, process is one who offends you. If someone offends you, you do not broadcast it to everyone else. You go to them privately. There's a dignity issue here. You do not splash their sin all over the place. You go to them privately. However, when someone in the church of Jesus Christ is dealing with something publicly, and they've made their sin public, to correct it so that everyone knows, uh, hey guys, this is incorrect behavior. This is not in accordance with the pattern. This is a cancer. This is cancerous behavior right here. It's called a rebuke. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring, one, one before another, do, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Well, that doesn't sound very loving. Who subvert whole houses. Wherefore, 
rebuke them sharply. This is Paul speaking to another church leader, Titus. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Why? Rebuke them sharply so that they would go to hell and they would know that you were standing by as they, you know, fell over dead? No. That they may be sound in the faith. The goal is life. The kidneys are there. Not to harm the body, but to help the body. The kidneys love just like the heart does. But the way they express it just doesn't translate well. We're getting this purity out. And the reason, why? So that there be health in the body. I don't like my kidneys. Well, without your kidneys, you die. And without kidneys in the truth and in the church of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ withers up and dies. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Listen to this little sub-list here. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Righteousness being the way one ought to be. This scripture is a kidney. It literally reproves us. It corrects us. It's a description here. It's like all scripture is a kidney. You might as well say it that way. That's exactly what it is. It is useful to purify the body. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Galatians 2. Now listen to how Paul handled this situation. A little awkward. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Poor Peter. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, uh-oh, we got a kidney and he's moving in. This is Paul. Now, is Paul a loving man? Is Paul a man that we should look at and say, what does the love of Jesus look like? Of course, is the answer. Of course, there was that book I think I was telling you about last week in the bookstores now that says Paul was not a Christian. Well, if you read that book, maybe we could come to a different conclusion. I encourage you not to read that book. Paul was a Christian. Paul was an example of what Jesus Christ will do in a man. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Peter was in the wrong. It's clear all throughout the New Testament. It's supported by the entire Bible. Peter never refutes this. He was in the wrong. And the kidney part of love had to come in to make sure that Peter maintained soundness and the body of Christ maintained soundness. No one wants to be the kidney. And no one wants to have a kidney. These are not easy things. However, this is love. Revelation 2. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. So here's God. I mean, glorified Christ, God, speaking to his church. I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, and teach to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. God has given a space. Why? Because he loves. But God's kidney will purge. 
the body of Christ. He will rescue his church. He will not allow this junk to remain in the body. A love that separates. This is a really challenging one. And by the way, I know that I describe myself as a kidney. I don't want to be just a kidney, okay? If I were to go back in Eric's history, oh, I don't know what it is, probably five, six, seven years ago, I probably should keep some journal which has like these key chronological events. God exposed my softness. I saw certain lives in my ministry that went down the toilet because Eric was unwilling to rise up and speak straight. I tried to hug them through their sin. And so I remember coming to that point where God was really convicting me on this issue. Are you willing to love as I love? But that doesn't feel like love, God. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like love. My sensibilities are offended by that. Eric, do you believe me and my word? Or are you going to follow the cultural pattern? Which one? You pick right now. I know you're right. I know you're right, but I'm so afraid to become that guy. That prophet with the camel skin loincloth and eating wild uh, locust. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be a likable character. I want to be someone that people want to be around. I can just see my hair. It's going to start getting wiry. Weird things are going to happen to me. I'm going to get a scrub. I, have, I, have, I don't grow a beard because I have two bald spots on my uh, face. You're going to ask me to grow a beard. And I'm going to look ridiculous. I do not want to be that guy. I don't want to be the prophet. So here's my negotiations with God. It wasn't negotiations. It was turning over. I said, God... I'm willing for you to put as much Martin Luther in me as you know needs to be there. Just don't get carried away. But I'm willing. I was all heart. And God started increasing my kidney size. You know what it did? It wasn't just how I related to the body of Christ and those around me. It changed me. As I began to look at the word of God, there was a fierceness to say, that starts here. Right here. Kidney, do your work. My passion for the word of God increased because I wasn't afraid of it anymore. My kidneys were operative and I realized they were helping me just like I was now able to help those around me. One of the reasons I'm a strong father is because I allowed my kidney to start going. Because now I love my family too much to allow them to fall into disrepair. I love my marriage too much. I love my wife too much. I love what God's doing in my life. I love you too much to allow you to fall into disrepair. Eric's got a kidney going. And by the way, Eric has been accused of being unloving. But is it unloving? I deeply love, and I'm, I, of course, I can only give personal testimony from my own side of the equation. You can't get inside of me and test it all out. God's the one that tries the hearts and the kidneys. But I can tell you from firsthand experience, since I'm the one stuck inside here, I love. I love each of you. I love these students. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love the truth of Jesus Christ more than any. I love my king. I do. It's real. When I worship him, I mean it. I love him. But one of the things that's increased my love 
is my allowance for my kidney to become as it ought to be. And I have prayed, dear God, don't just make me one big kidney. You know what my prayer has been for the last five years specifically? God, I don't want to just be a prophet. If you're going to make me a prophet, I need to be a weeping one. I need to be a man who has heart and kidneys. Make me a weeping prophet. A love that separates. <sighs> this is tough stuff. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, hide-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That's where every one of us stops. Some of us stop, but denying the, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. We stop one step up above that. From such, turn away. What does that mean? Let's keep going. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. What? Well, that, that won't, uh, that, that'll be awkward. That won't seem very loving. Aren't we trying to love this person into heaven? How in the world can you love them properly if you're having no company with them? That he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy. You see that? Not say, consider him your enemy. It says, have no company with him. I don't want to do that. That's going to be awkward. You better believe it, it's awkward. Kidney work is not fun. I do not like that scripture after the natural man. There's more to come, by the way. I want to keep company with him to let him know I haven't given up on him. But there is some work that God does when we function as we ought to function. And we can't make it happen our way. Your love is a counterfeit. It's his love that works to seek and save the lost. It's his love that awakens the soul, not yours. Let's get it straight. He must be the one loving through us. His way on his terms. A man that is a heretic, and I put a little note in for you, a, a schismatic, which probably doesn't help very much, factious, a factious, factious follower of false doctrine. In other words, he's divisive. He's making schisms in the midst. He's dividing people, and he's a follower of false doctrine. Whoa, what are we going to do with this? This is awkward, by the way. Now, some of you can just be very glad that you're not in my position. Because unfortunately, I've had way too much experience in this. Every pastor dreams of never having to deal with any of these things. But there's a reason why Paul speaks clearly to Timothy. There's a reason why Paul speaks clearly to Titus. Hey, guys, you that are running this church, I mean, this was the good church. This is the early church. They had it right, didn't they? They had an enemy surrounding them, wolves all around them attempting to destroy what had just begun, just like we do. So a man that is a heretic... After the first and second admonition, okay, that's a tough word. Reject? You know what that word actually means? And I hate to even use the actual Greek definition. It means to shun. Because some of you in here know that word far too well. However, it's been misused. And as a result, we have no idea what to do with this. That, that's not love. That's because we've seen it misused. 
This is love. Knowing that he that is such is subverted and sins being condemned of himself. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. Who gives messages like this? Well, why in the world? I had two different messages I was going to give this week, and they were both little kid messages, and I ended up popping this one out on you. Second John, look to yourselves that we may lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine... Receive him not into your house. You going to obey the word of God on these points? Or is God just blabbering here? Did he get a little off course and he's like, oh, he's going a little crazy here. We can surgically remove that line. Is this love? Because in our social sensibilities, this is awkward. This doesn't fit, does it? You're looking at me as I'm coming up with this. It's like he's just digging through scripture trying to find this stuff. You read your Bible. This is Paul's training for the church leaders. This is just how it works. Neither bid him God's speed, for he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple." Paul warns them with tears, saying he knows what is happening, and he knows what is coming after the body of Christ. Beware! And if you truly love the body, then don't show hospitality to the wolves. I am not opening up my home to just have anything and everything come in that knocks on its door. Oh, come on in. I love you. I love my family, and I love my Jesus. And it doesn't mean I don't love that person, but that doesn't mean I give them access to the sheep pen. We have to know how to handle the sheep pen wisely with the love of the good shepherd. First Timothy, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. But doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. You notice how this isn't just once? Whew, this keeps coming up. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from any brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. A love that proclaims truth with unbending, uncompromising fervor. Again, this is speaking to Titus. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Zealous of good works. So Paul has just laid out the gospel. And he says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke 
with all authority. Let no man despise thee. It's manly stuff. Hey, Titus, you be a man. You don't get pushed around. You're the protector, the under-shepherd for this flock. Jesus has an agenda. It's been entrusted to you. You be watchful. You love them as Christ loves his church. You love them well. This is love. It both shares compassion, life, kindness, mercy. At the same time, it protects and preserves and separates when necessary. A love untarnished by sin and unstained by the flesh. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. But fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Be watchful. Love one another as Christ loved the church. Allow that love to start in your own soul. And allow that kidney to be operable because that flesh will kill the body. The flesh was circumcised and removed at the cross of Jesus Christ. You are not born of the flesh anymore. You're now born of the spirit. You function after a different pattern. And therefore your love, your heart and your kidneys now can be infused with Christ's love. False love leads to fleshly living. If you have the wrong definition of love, it actually kills you. It's really amazing. This definition is rather important. If you get it wrong, it actually encourages the flesh. It defiles the mind and conscience, creating an inability to hear the Spirit of God. Because if you allow the flesh to continue unabated in your life, what it does is it destroys the spirit life within you. And suddenly your spiritual ears are deaf. You have wax in them. Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, But in works, they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work, reprobate. Well, you know what? That's not healthy. The flesh cannot rule in this body. God dealt with it on the cross. Read Romans 6 afresh, you'll see it. When Christ died, he dealt with our old man, the flesh, the controlling, operative, managing power of our bodies. Why? So that we could have new management come in and rule these bodies. And if you want to say it this way, take our heart and our reins and make them work as they ought to work. It leads to a life lived in the flesh and not one lived in the spirit. That's sort of an understatement. It's just obvious. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told, also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what follows that. Okay, This is in Galatians 5. Many of us know Galatians 5, but it talks about the fruits of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. It's two different lives. 
If your life is one marked by flesh love, then you bear the fruit of the flesh. You can try and cover it up, but your secret thoughts are on things of darkness and not on things of light. The light has never permeated your being and set you free. Because what the cross did is it circumcised you to your flesh. The old man no longer has legal control over this body. He cannot just control you and manage you as he used to. You're set free. Reckon it is so. Take this as a fact to your soul. And now you can have the Spirit as your manager. You can literally have God move in and control your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the very first fruit. It's love. And some people have said that's the chief fruit and all the other fruits are an, ex- are an extension of love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. So, when the flesh is removed, what is the fruit? The first fruit. Love. You want to love? Then get rid of the flesh. It's the only way you can. You can't love in a human way. You can only love in a supernatural way. It's the only way. And that's why when we see love, God's style, we're offended. Because it's our natural way. Hey, we're right. Is God wrong? No, God's right. We're wrong. End of discussion. Put a period under the end. It's done. God's right. Let's submit to it. What are we doing arguing these things? I know you might be squirming. but This is just truth. Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such things there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Paul says it so nonchalantly. Hey, guys, dead to the flesh. Now let's walk in the Spirit. Let's bear these things. So many of us are like, I've tried, I've tried. That's what we've dealt with at Ellerslie. The first four weeks, flesh, nullified, dead, crucified. You must take the legal paperwork of the cross and stick it in the flesh's face. Read it and weep, signed by Jesus Christ with his own blood. You have no more position here in this body. I serve one, and that's the king of kings. God is not fooled by false love, so let's not fool ourselves into thinking he is. I have run into an awful lot of false love. Here's some of its favorite lines. Do we all show our love for him in different ways? We all show our love for him in different ways, though. I mean, Eric, you show your love for him in being all pure. Thank you. That's quite the compliment. I can hear it in your voice that you're really esteeming my purity. Oh, you're all pure. I show my love for Christ in looking at pornography. By the way, I've heard that one because I'm admiring what he's done. Okay, you see this. This is how we show our love. Do we choose how to show God love? Or does God define how love works? I submit that he defines how it works. And we need to be bent to his model. Does our love for him look different in different people? Does love look different? Well, that's love for that person. They're just expressing it the best they know how. Does God's love look different? If you love me, keep my commandments. Straightforward, right to the point. So if you really do love him, keep his commandments. Same across the board. Show your love for God by believing him, by following his way. Submit to it. He's right. And if you don't know how to keep his commandments, come to Jesus and start knocking, saying, I need something. I don't have what I need. 
Talk to me too. I'll tell you exactly what it is. Give you the gospel. It's good stuff. He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Did you hear that? And he that loves me shall be loved of my father and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Condition. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. You see that? But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abides in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Oof, that one hurts. Because if you know your life well, you know that there's no way you can walk as he walked. In fact, you also are going to go back to some of these other scriptures and say, well, I do love you, God, but I can't keep your commandments. I, I know your commandments. I have them. They sit in a little pocket Bible in my, in my uh, coat, but I can't keep them. God makes it very clear, this is love. This is love. You want to love your God? Then you get familiar with his gospel. Because there's only one way that you can keep his commandments, and you will show him love by going after that way. He is the way. And what he accomplished on that cross was the only means by which you could ever fulfill these scriptures. He that saith he abides in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Good luck. You can't do it. He can do it in you. Flesh removed. New management comes in. And suddenly, love works. Love works when God is obeyed. He says, believe, reckon, present, and yield your bodies. Believe it. Do you believe that God did it? Yeah, I think so. You can, I've used this illustration. The Rotary Club has the burgers and brats barbecue. You can know that it's happened. You can believe that they're having it right now. But you need to reckon it if you want a hamburger to be digesting in your stomach. You have to go and get it. So that's what God's saying. Love me. Go and get it. Go and reckon these things is true. Do you believe that when I died 2,000 years ago, your old man was dealt with? Do you believe it? Go and get it. And then Paul says, and yield. Present your body unto God. In Romans 12, he says, as a living sacrifice, this is your reasonable act of service. It's only reasonable. You show him love by obeying him. He says, give me what I purchased, and you'll show me love. Obey him. And then he will come in, and he'll enable you by his power and his grace to fulfill his commands and to walk as he walked. It's not going to be you. It's going to be him. And you will be imperfect in this journey. You'll trip every now and then. However, you're going to be clothed in him the entire time. And his perfection will keep you locked in to the Father's presence. He does the work in and through you. He does the work to get you to the Father. And he does the work of getting the promise of the Father in you. So that you can live as you ought to live. And love as you ought to love. The church has some big hearts. 
And we should commend those big hearts. The church needs some big kidneys. And we should commend those big kidneys as opposed to grit our teeth and try and hold our tongue with our big hearts and say, I don't think that that's appropriate. You know what? You start reading your Bible afresh with new eyes and you allow your kidney to start functioning, you're gonna see that this is God and he is love. He loves us too much to let us be ravaged by the devil. He loves his church too much to allow wolves to creep in and devour the flock. He loves you too much to allow sin to remain. He will shine his light. The light of the sun will test your heart and your reins and will purify the life within you so that you can live. Who wouldn't want that? This is good! As quoted by a big kidney. Kidneys aren't very attractive, but they're necessary. We need both the feminine stuff and the manly stuff for true life to be conceived. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.